number three in the hymnal uh, will stand together, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. And when we finish, then uh, Alan Ross will come up and take us into Isaiah 6. Difficult challenges, I was just going to say, of speaking here is not tripping over this thing <laughs> with all the wires that we have here. But uh, I think we're good for now. We will be in Isaiah chapter 6 for this session. And I am sure that uh, pastors and teachers alike here have studied, dealt with this passage quite frequently. It was probably the first message I ever heard about Isaiah came from Isaiah 6 and as you might guess from Isaiah 6 it was a missionary passage a missionary sermon at a conference 
which um, the culmination of the, this service was uh, Here Am I, Send Me, and of course that's where the sermon ends because that's what you're trying to get to in the missionary emphasis. But I want to focus it on, on, you know, on this for a couple of levels. One, the call of Isaiah, of course, but also uh, for the uh, requirements of all believers in their service of the Lord, and thirdly, for the paradigm that it offers us for worship. So let me begin by saying that, as we would readily acknowledge, uh, a legitimate or actual call to ministry is a life-changing event. It's not something that is a clever career choice, and if it doesn't work out, you can always fall back on your secular job. That's not exactly what I've heard students say that, but that's not exactly what we're talking about. Uh, it's not just a good job offer that somebody would accept. The call is something very precise and very specific. I love preaching at ordination services of students that I've had, and in one of them... <coughs> Uh, I was introducing the subject at the, for the sermon with three observations. <clears throat> Number one, uh, the, the fellow's name was Charles. <clears throat> I said, first of all, you need to know that we are here to ordain Charles tonight, but you should know, first of all, that he's not qualified for this job. <clears throat> <clears throat> and secondly you should know that he didn't choose this job. <clears throat> and third, that if he doesn't <clears throat> actually have a call, uh, he will quit <clears throat> when it gets too difficult. And then I had to back up and explain what I was meaning by all of that because this was an Anglican group and they were not quite sure what in the world I was saying all that for. <clears throat> but they have some... They have some strange things in the Anglican ordination service. It's a beautiful service, one of the most marvelous services to attend. But some of the prayers need to be rewritten a little bit. Uh, one of the things that um, they do when they ordain a minister in the Anglican church is he will, at the climax of the service, kneel down and the bishop will lay his hands on him and he'll be ordained. But the bishop at that point prays Give him your Holy Spirit. Now, my thinking is, if you got through seminary, and you got through all of your work in the church, and you got through all the commissions on ministry, and you passed all the exams, and you're here, and the Holy Spirit hasn't been any part of it, um, I'm not sure we need this service. Um, reminded me of the first first term I, the time I heard W.A. Criswell preach in Dallas, when I got there, and he started this sermon. This is my first exposure to him. He said, if the Holy Spirit was taken out of the world today, 97% of all Christian activity would continue. <laughs> uh, if you remember W.A. Criswell, you know that's what he, kinds of things that he did. But um, we're dealing here in the Old Testament with a call of the young prophet Isaiah. It's not a call to be a prophet. He already is a prophet. This is a call to a new phase of his ministry and service of God. And uh, he, too, needs some things changed in his life if he's going to actually do this. 
And this is true of people in uh, any any church going into a fully uh, ordained ministry where God has chosen you and you have been called and and the church is now officially recognizing that. Um, a little aside here, just uh, as a way of introduction, um, I do not now teach in a fully Episcopal seminary, but I did for about a dozen years. And you may not be familiar with the procedure, but the way it works in a, a school that is totally Anglican, totally Episcopalian, the student, when when any student comes, those students have to be um, supported by a bishop, their home church diocese bishop. And uh, they have to have already set up a committee in their home diocese of ministry, a group of four to five people who will be monitoring them all the time as they go through the uh, seminary program. So that the faculty of the seminary, the bishop, and this commission on ministry work hand-in-hand, step-by-step every semester to make sure we are monitoring the preparation of the student. And it is not just academic. Because in the Episcopal world, if you give an MDiv, a Master of Divinity degree, to a student, then that means that the faculty is, as a whole, unanimous in recommending that person for ordination. So what we had to do is that if we had students that may be good students and learned a lot, but were immature or problems with anger or whatever else uh, that was uh, going to be a problem, uh, and we wouldn't recommend them for ordination, then we did not give them the MDiv degree. But we had to tell that up front in the brochure we could be sued. So we'd have to say right from the beginning, you're coming in here, it's not an academic degree. You're being prepared for entire ministry, and we want to see your family life, your spiritual life, your life in the public uh, your relationship with other people in the student body, all these things together to see if you are maturing and you are becoming the person that will be most useful for God in the ministry. One year we had to sit down when we were first doing this and work out a, a whole chart of the things that we felt a person going into ministry should be making great strides in accomplishing. We had about 10 categories. And with each one, we had what we were looking for, but we had little red flags, too. Um, person needs to be devout uh, worshiper and, um, and one who prays. And we had little red flags that um, one would be, if you heard this person pray in chapel or in church, but nobody ever heard him pray in silence or in a, at home, we just raised a little flag. Uh, if you pray more in public than you do in private, uh, is that really what you want as the model in the church? But we made up all the this list. And what was interesting to us, and this is the point of this, is that everything on that list also described what a mature Christian was supposed to be. So that while we were looking for these qualities in someone going into the church, 
we were also seeing that not only do they have to have these qualities, they have to draw them out of the congregation because the congregation has to have all these qualities too if they're growing in the Lord. And after all, they're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And so the qualities that were there were basic Christian qualities, basic Christian virtues. And so anybody trying to grow in the Lord and then become useful to God in the ministry of that church, uh, you'd expect these kinds of things showing up in their life. Uh, They had to be actively growing. Sometimes it was uh, a little more difficult in the church to get people to uh, conform to this, but it just took a lot of preaching the Word and helping people to understand this. So that when we look at this passage today, It's not just a historical record of how God called um, Isaiah. It is also a clear description of how God will prepare anybody in the life of the church to be serving, whether it's a Sunday school teacher or part of the outreach ministry or whatever part they play in the role of the ministry, the same procedure belongs there. And if you're conducting a worship service in the church, the same pattern is going to work there. All these things have a way of overlapping. And so we're going to look at it on those several levels in here. And um, when you're dealing with the chapter, chapter 6, very familiar chapter, uh, we can see how the procedure goes with a, with a brief step-by-step outline. And I'll just give to you so... In, in case you doze off and you, you want to know where we were, you can come back and pick that one up. Uh, the first step is revelation. The second step is sanctification. The third step is dedication. And the fourth step is inspiration. Now, I'll tease those out a little bit, but that just gives you a thumbnail of where we are and uh, what the topic of that section is. This first part, the first four verses, will be the revelation that Isaiah received. Let me read the verses and then make a few observations on them. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim, six of them, each with six wings, each two wings, each with two wings. They covered their eyes, their their bodies, and they flew. These are the seraphim that are around the throne of God. And they were calling one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. I think it is safe for me to just remind you that you will probably not have this experience. Um, I'm not saying it can't happen, 
God can do anything that he wants to do. But since there were only about four people in all of the history of the Bible that saw it, uh, the chances of any of us seeing it like this would be uh, really quite remarkable. But these people needed these revelations at the certain times where they were starting a new ministry. This is the time we're told that the king, Uzziah, the king of Judah, died. This would be putting the year for this revelation in 742 B.C. When the king died, it was not on good terms with God. Uh, He was a good king. He was a righteous king. He had a long reign that was prosperous for Judah. But in the end of his life, he decided he could also be the priest and he could do those duties like some of the kings of the ancient Near East. And of course, God uh, took his life, overstepping the boundaries. And so it's a time when the king died. I mean, all kings died. But when you have 21 kings in Judah and only four of them were righteous, it's very sad when you lose a good one. And it's, he's a good one, but he made a mistake. And so he died. But what's interesting is that Isaiah here is not focusing on the king or focusing on his death. The young prophet probably is in the temple precincts, probably at the end of the day, waiting to perhaps extinguish some of the lights in the courtyard and uh, turn in for the night. And all of a sudden, he sees something that no one had ever seen before. And no one yet has seen it. To understand what he has seen, you have to understand the theology of the holy place in the Old Testament. Holy place is not a big thing in evangelical uh, Protestantism, uh, but it is in most of the world. The desire to commemorate something that happened there and use it in future worship, uh, those were very common in the days of the early church. One of my favorite places to visit when I'm in England is St. Bartholomew's Church. Easy to find, just go to St. Bartholomew's Hospital and the church is right there. When you walk in the entrance to this church, there's a plaque on the wall in the foyer and it says, Holy Communion has been celebrated in this church every Christmas since the year 1120. Now, you've got to think back through 900 years of British history in London, and whether it's the plagues or the fires or the wars, or what, still there having that service, because uh, this is what you did. Uh, you go to a place that has been a tried and true place of prayer, place of worship, and that becomes something that you want to commemorate and keep. What happened in Israel was a little bit different than anything we have in the church or have had in the church. And if you get this in your mind, you can understand a lot of Scripture passages, that the, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and here it would be in the temple in Jerusalem, that was the, in their thinking and understanding, by revelation, that was the one spot on earth where heaven and earth met. That's a little hard to grasp, but... That is what their understanding is. Here is a place that you might come to worship, 
But if the Ark of the Covenant is there, the Lord is actually here. And this this allows the Lord to be here enthroned in the Holy of Holies while he is also enthroned in heaven because heaven and earth meet at this point. When Isaiah was in the sanctuary, getting ready to leave, all of a sudden he was allowed to look into the Holy of Holies, which would have been the earthly throne for throne room for God. Because the Psalms describe the Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. Remember the Ark of the Covenant was the box and you had the angels carved on there. And God was pictured as seated enthroned above that, making the, what you always called the mercy seat on the Ark, not the seat at all, it's the footstool that his feet rested on the, on the Ark and blood would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant at his feet, but he would be enthroned above the cherubim. So the veil is somehow pulled aside. Isaiah gets to look in there, which he shouldn't have because he wasn't a high priest. But he doesn't stop there. He is looking through that into heaven. And he is seeing the Lord enthroned in heaven because this is the place they come in contact with. We have confirmation of this in the Bible. In John chapter 12, Jesus is quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 6, about these people who didn't believe the report and who were blinded and whatever. And then John 12 tells us that Isaiah saw Christ in glory. So all it says here, he saw the Lord lifted up. But Jesus in the New Testament will make it clear that he wasn't just looking into a room at the back of the tabernacle. His vision went right through that to the heavenly scene to see the second person of the Godhead enthroned in all his glory in the heavenly sanctuary. That's why not many people have seen something like that. Uh, But this is Isaiah's vision that he gets. And he sees the Lord enthroned, high, exalted, lifted up. He is the sovereign of the whole world. And then he sees all these seraphim. Um, these are an order of angels, as you probably know, who are described elsewhere as flames of fire. They have shapes, structures, and yet here they are in the presence of God um, and with their wings. Two of the wings uh, are going to be covering their faces and two wings are covering their bodies and with two wings they fly. It will give us a preview here of the holiness of the Lord. If the angels in the presence of God cover themselves, what would that mean for us in the world who enter into God's presence and and talk about His holiness? But uh, as one hymn writer uh, put it, these angels blushed to see the Lord. They had to put on their wings in front of their faces and they would fly around the altar and they would call out. And what they called out is one of the most ancient hymns in all of Scripture. We know the angels love to sing. We know that because the Lord told Job that, uh, you remember when he questioned Job, who was arguing all these things and He says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? 
when all the sons of God shouted for joy and all the morning stars sang, the angels were so bowled over by creation that they were singing of God's creation way back there before God created the whole human race and everything that followed. They sang of him. And when you get to Revelation 4 and 5, the hymns in heaven, the angels are still singing praise to God for creation that he created everything by his word and for his pleasure. And, and, and so it's instructive that while there are all kinds of pagan gods out there and people believe false religions, there's only one who created everything. And he created it by his word. And it was so great and so magnificent, the angels never got over it. Um, we get over it, <laughs> you know. Creation, yeah, we studied that last week. We, you know, what's the, what now? Well, these these angels, they saw it happening, and uh, that would have been a spectacular thing for them. So they sing, "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord of armies." I know your Bible might say the Lord of hosts, but we're not talking about a gracious host. We're talking about the sovereign power of God. He's the Lord of armies. All armies in heaven and on earth, they're all at his disposal to do what he wants to do. And the whole earth is full of his glory. We sing this an awful lot in liturgical churches, and some of your hymns um, will paraphrase this uh, anthem that is here for you to sing because we always sing of the Lord's holiness and the Lord's glory. But I am afraid that too many people in the life of the church don't know what those words mean. Let me take just a minute to, I'm sure you do, but uh, suggest some ways to explain them to people. We do know that holy is one of the main characteristics of God in the Old Testament, one of the chief attributes that is given. Not the most important one. The most important attribute of God is that he's living. <laughs> if he's not living, none of this other matters. But he's alive. He's the living God. But he's described as holy. Now get it out of your mind. Holy does not mean righteous. In the Old Testament, righteous means righteous. There's a different word. This is holy. And it basically means distinct, unique, or if I could paraphrase it, put the cookies on the lowest shelf here today, if I could put in my own words, it means there is no one like him in heaven, on earth, never has been, never will be. Now the catch in is if you're teaching this in the church and you just leave that and say there's no one like him, you've just created a vacuum because that doesn't tell you anything. Just that, well, he's not like anybody here. Oh, we know that, but uh, in what way? You need, and the psalmists do this, you need all the other attributes of God to explain what holiness means. If you say he is unique and he is distinct, let's go down the list. Here's the Lord. He's omnipresent. Nobody else is. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Nobody else does. He is infinite. I can understand somebody going to heaven and living forever, but that's not infinite. Uh, infinite means he never had a beginning. Uh, there's nobody like that. Um, and you just start down this list and every step of the way there's no pagan god like this there's no human like this there's no force in heaven or hell like this it's only true of God 
and you get a better picture of what they meant with holy because of all the other descriptions that are telling us in what way he is distinct or different or unique uh, in all of their imagination and in their revelation. And the fact that it says it three times means that he is incomparably holy. Uh, Hebrew loves to emphasize things by repetition. And in this sense, um, he is he is unique, he is distinct, there's no one like him in existence anywhere. And going with that is the word glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. Glory is a, a little more specific word to use. It uh, basically means heavy. Um, but by metaphorical extension, they would apply the word heavy to the meaning important. Uh, Paul plays on this word in the New Testament when he talks about the eternal weight of glory. In Hebrew, the word weight and the word glory are the same word. They're not in Greek in the epistle, but he is playing on that idea of the weight that is there. It's also, you might find this perhaps amusing, perhaps interesting, but... um, It's also the same Hebrew word for your liver. (laughs) And the reason for that is that they considered the liver not only the heaviest organ, but the most important. And modern medicine seems to agree with that. I mean, easy to change a heart. It's a pump. Liver is another matter. Um, You get some difficulties that arise there. Theological training in the pagan world would have been very different than Chafer Seminary. Because what you would do is uh, you would take an animal, you would kill it, you'd cut out its liver, and you'd study it. We use books, but that delivers. And uh, if that liver was deformed or diseased, that's a bad omen. If it's a healthy liver, then you make a clay model of it and put it on the shelf in your temple. We've got all kinds of archaeological remains of livers that are there in the temple. And you even read it in Ezekiel. King of Babylon comes along and he finds a fork in the road. So what does he do? He looks into the liver. He has to divine. So it became important in their thinking, and it is still even today. Uh, it's more important than the heart. If you were living in Syria or Iraq or any of those countries, even Iran, um, It's more important than the heart. So you would say to your spouse, not I love you with all my heart. That doesn't mean a thing. I love you with all my liver. (laughs) And in fact, they would often refer to their children instead of saying my dear one or sweetheart, it's my liver, uh, the child. It's because that organ was the most important. Uh, And it was in in Israel a seat of emotions and will and feelings and so on. And so every human being, according to Old Testament theology, has kavod, glory. Uh, you have you you are a meaningful person. You are important. But when you talk about God and his glory he is infinitely more important than any of us. So if we say he is holy, we mean there's no one like him. 
When we say the world is filled with his glory, that means that uh, he's the most important person in all existence. And sometimes there was phenomena, clouds and, and smoke and fire came along, and they called that the glory of the Lord shining everywhere because that was a natural phenomenon in an unnatural situation representing the fact that the one who is there is the sovereign creator of all the universe and uh, therefore veiled by the clouds and the pillars and, and people would follow that. So it's here that while it takes away from the beauty to say this, what they're saying is that that there's no one like God and that he is the most important person in your life, more important than your family, more important than your children, more important. You might say, well, they're important. Of course they're important to you. But God, most important person in your life. And this is what the prophet is going to be reminded of. So these angels are singing this, and they have been singing it, and don't cease to sing it, so that uh, that, that word would go forth and uh, beautifully written in uh, the text. And when they were singing, the whole place shook. Not heaven, the earthly temple. And all of that was shaking and vibrating because of this revelation of the King of Glory and the uh, significance of His presence and the power of His being there was never quite the same in Isaiah's memory. So he's given this revelation, which is the starting point. If, um, if somebody was going to be a prophet of the Lord in the Old Testament, uh, you would want to know by what authority they were going to be a prophet, because there's prophets all over the place, and there were in the early church. But uh, their ministry starts with a revelation from God. You and I will not have the same revelation because we don't need it as they did. We have the incarnation. Isaiah didn't have that. Uh, so that when we're talking about uh, revelation of the glory of God, it's Christ. And um, you see that even in the first chapter of John. The word of the Lord, this is Christ. This word created everything. This word came into this world, this word tabernacled among us, alluding to the tabernacle in the wilderness, which would have the holy, glorious nature of the Lord in the shrine under the tent. And the, what John is saying is the flesh of Christ was like that tabernacle tent in the wilderness. And inside that tent, underneath that curtain, underneath that veil, you have the glory of the Lord. And John says, we saw it. We beheld his glory. I'm sure that certainly included, among other things, the transfiguration. They were given a glimpse of this glory of Christ, that he's not an ordinary person, that he is here with us, and he took on the form and the likeness, but he's the Lord God of all creation. So it starts there. And if you're thinking in terms of a worship service, that's the starting point. Anytime you're going to ask for a response of the people in worship and faith and obedience, it starts with what revelation they are receiving. And you have the Word of God to proclaim, and you have the prayers and the praises to deliver. You have all these things to show that 
this is entering into the presence of of the living God, and we're here to worship the Son of God and the Father, but it's centered on Christ. Now, if you're of a liberal bent and you decide Christ isn't divine, then all your Christian worship is idolatry because you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping a mere prophet or a, a good man. We don't worship them. But you worship the Lord because of who he is. In the Old Testament, he frequently revealed himself this way. When Christ comes, this is the full revelation of the Godhead, and uh, you can see the glories of Christ over and over again, and even in the pictures in Revelation. Any revelation, though, demands a response. And the response here from Isaiah is going to be conviction. He is going to lament his condition. Woe is me, I cried out. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Sure, the king, Uzziah, he's dead. Isaiah said, no, I saw the king. You see what's going on on the earth and you make all your assessments by things that happen on the earth, whether they are tragic or good or whatever. You've got to lift your eyes a little bit higher because the real throne, the real center of power for the theocratic administration is the throne in heaven. And he's not touched by the deaths and the rivalries that are going on here on earth. So Isaiah is struck with this and he says, I am unclean unclean of lips. Now you need to be a little careful here with this word unclean. Uh, This again calls for a bit of study in the book of Leviticus because the word unclean doesn't necessarily mean sinful. If you were sinful, if you had committed a sin, you would be called unclean. But even if you didn't, you could be unclean. Um, Depending on what you ate for lunch, you might be unclean. Uh, because they had dietary laws. Depending what you wore, you could be, could be unclean because they had lo- wore, uh, rules for clothing and cloth and whatever. Um, if you had some illness, cold or flu, you're unclean. If you had touched carcasses, you would be unclean. All the word unclean means is you're not allowed in the presence of God for one reason or another. And if you think in terms of the ritual in Leviticus, got to think in terms of three categories. One category is unclean. The second category is clean. And the third category is holy. So Jesus finds some lepers. They're unclean. So he heals them. What do they have to do is go and show themselves to the priest that they are now clean and able to enter the temple. But before they could go in the temple, of course, they would have to bring an animal sacrifice to be sanctified. So that's the sequence that they run. Uh, Unclean is kind of a hard uh, concept for us to gather because we always think in terms of sin and righteousness. And there's this in-between area. Let me give you an illustration that the rabbis love to use. I think you'll get the point of the nature of the word unclean. The bones of an ass donkey, I mean. Bones, <laughs> the bones of an ass are clean. 
but the bones of your dead uncle are unclean. You say, well, it should be just the opposite. No, because you can take the bones of an ass and you can whittle them into utensils. But you can't whittle Uncle Willie into <laughs> utensils to use them at the table. That's off limits. You can't do that. Uh, they, are, they are out of bounds. That's called unclean, but it just, it just means kind of the reverse idea. And so what is Isaiah saying? This guy's a nice and good young prophet. He's not a corrupt, evil person. He is uh, devoted to the Lord. He's there in the sanctuary. But notice how he singles it. Singles it out, I am a man of unclean lips. He has just heard what the angels are saying without cessation. And this has caused him to think perhaps about the things he talks about, which are perfectly normal. They're perfectly good and healthy. He might talk about sports, might talk about the uh, stock market. He might talk about the weather. He might talk about family. All of those are fine. But they're not fine in the presence of the absolute sovereign God of the universe. And uh, when he compares himself with what the angels are saying, when they're in the presence of God, he realizes he's unclean. And the nation is unclean. And he's not going to be able to go into heaven or into the presence of God in that condition. He needs to acknowledge his uncleanness. You see this at the end of the book of Revelation, just as a little aside here. You might be a believer today. You might be in fellowship with the Lord. You might be filled with the Holy Spirit. You might be seeing God's blessings on your ministry. But you're not going into heaven the way you are because you are unclean. You're in a body that's dying. You're in a world that's contaminated. You're in a, in a society that your mind can't even stay pure because of all the corruptions out there. So Revelation will end by saying nothing unclean will enter into heaven. And when you get to go into heaven, you will be glorified. That has to happen or you can't come in. In fact, even in Hebrews, it goes out of its way to say that when Christ ascended to heaven, he cleansed heaven. Now, what in the world is wrong with heaven that he has to cleanse it? Well, we're coming in. And uh, there has to be this preparation in every dimension and every imaginal connection. So if he's unclean, he could have sinned, of course, but he's just basically not on the same level of devotion and piety that the angels are, and neither is the nation. And so he's made aware of this, not just because of hearing their singing, but because he's seen the king who is the Lord of hosts. And when you catch a vision of the Lord in glory and you know about all the praise and the singing that goes on in heaven and all the words that people have said about the Lord down through the history of the faith and then you step back and say, now what do I talk about all week? Or what do I think about all week? And you realize that... Uh, we too need to be looking more at the, at, at the nature of our conversation and the nature of the way we live if we truly have seen in the scriptures the glory of the Lord. So that's his acknowledgement uh, and the woe that he puts on himself. Uh, 
And then we get this happening. One of these seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. This is obviously a vision. And it is not part of temple ritual. Never would anybody who hadn't been singing praises to the Lord have an angel sear his lips because of that and do that with the coals on the altar. So what's the point of this vision? I think what it's trying to do here is to show you that in the cleansing of the young prophet, God through his angels is bypassing the ritual completely. And there will be direct intervention to cleanse the prophet. And the best way he can do it is show, take the coals off the altar. In the vision, sear his lips. Make him clean in his lips. Uh, But that would never be a reality. It was simply the vision that God has forgiven his sins and his uncleanness and cleansed him and uh, atoned for him. I need to be careful that you understand this too because... You are used to the word atonement as an almost equivalent of salvation. But that's New Testament. We're in the Old Testament. And atonement is basically going to be applied to any forgiveness of sins, any cleansing of sins, any reestablishment of a relationship with God. In other words, it could be applied to salvation that we talk about. also can be applied to sanctification. Because when the Israelites made the sacrifices, the main one was the burnt offering, and that was an atoning sacrifice. But the sacrifices were never given to Israel as a means of salvation. The Israelites were saved the same way you and I are. You hear the word of God, you believe in it, and you pray to God, He forgives your sins. It's it. Uh, But to complete the deal and understand that God was providing this means of forgiveness, you'd bring the animal and sacrifice it. But nobody offered an animal sacrifice in order to be saved in our New Testament language. Compare it to Holy Communion. We have Holy Communion and we try to say it's for believers. But there might be somebody in the congregation who's not a believer and uh, takes the communion. We have no control over what... Some people really are and what they do. But it is not impossible that at the moment of taking Holy Communion, that person might come to faith. That's not the purpose of Holy Communion, but it can happen, and uh, we rejoice in that. It wasn't the purpose of the sacrifices to make a person a believer and brought into the covenant, because these were maintenance sacrifices for the Israelite worshipers. And the basic one was under the heading atonement, meaning to remove all the sins and all the impediments and make you acceptable to God. And that they did every time they made a burnt offering. So you have to think in terms, Old Testament language sometimes, for these words like atonement. So what we discover is the revelation that the prophet received convicted him of his unworthiness. And when he acknowledged that unworthiness, then the Lord forgave and cleansed and made him pure. We're getting a pattern here for church. Go to church, you hear the word of God, you sing about it, you praise God for it. It's the revelation of God. 
If it's explained clearly and powerfully, this is very moving. If it's proper presentation of God's revelation, then um, revelation always demands a response, that there must be some response that the people have, whether to change their lives or to praise the Lord or whatever the message is all about. But if the revelation convicts people of sin and then they confess that sin sometime in the service, uh, then they can be assured that they have been forgiven and that they are sanctified. The next step then is the dedication. Verse, uh, the verse begins, Then I heard. Some of you who are experts in the Hebrew language um, or are struggling to be experts in the Hebrew language, this is one of the best examples you'll find in the Bible of the Vav consecutive. That's a very technical part of the grammar language. It only occurs a million times in the Bible, but it's very technical. It is, then I heard. The sequence is there. I saw this. I acknowledged my sin. I was forgiven. Then I heard this word from God. And the idea I think he's stressing is that prior to this, maybe he was hearing scriptures read in the temple, and maybe he was hearing things that were told to him by prophets and priests, but didn't really hear them. Uh, He listened, but he wasn't hearing them because he wasn't quite in the spiritual condition to receive them. He that has ears, Jesus said, let him hear. Well, there's a difference between hearing with your ears and hearing with your heart. And he is saying here, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Speaking in the fullness of the Godhead here. I always thought God had a bit of a sense of humor in different places. I'm sure Jesus did because otherwise children wouldn't have come around him. Uh, But uh, this young prophet, he's closing up the sanctuary. He sees a vision nobody else is seeing. He's overwhelmed by it. And then the question comes, let's see, whom shall I send? You know, there's nobody else in here. You know, <laughs> I'm the only one here. But whom shall I send and uh, who will go for us? There is a difference between sending and going. And it's more than just God sends and he goes. Because sometimes you'll see a call of a person in the Old Testament, um, go and I will send you. And they put it in that order. Uh, that would mean that they would have to step out by faith and go. But if they just stepped out and went and the Lord hadn't sent them, it was going to fall flat. Because if the Lord sends someone, it means he has endowed them with the voice of authority. They go as his ambassador, his spokesman. This is what Malachi will keep reminding the priests in his days. Uh, you are the messengers of God because he has given you the message. And you are supposed to deliver that message, but you will do it with the sanction of God and with the power of God enabling you to do it. And that's what he means by, I will send you. I will equip you. I will prepare you. It's what he says to Moses. You know, Moses, I can't talk very well. And the Lord says, I'll be with your mouth. (laughs) You can't get out of that one. And, uh, well, send Aaron. He's a good talker, as we all know. But, uh, no, the Lord says, no, you're going to go. 
I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. Uh, there is an enablement that goes with the call. And if you are, we'll talk about this in a moment, but if you are in the church and you feel called to ministry, then the question is, where does the enablement come from? Being called to ministry does not miss, just mean that you've been in church all your life and you'd kind of like to be a minister. Uh, that's part of it. If you, That's not it, though. Uh, one of the things that has to happen if you're going to be called to a ministry in the church is, first of all, there needs to be ongoing sanctification. You're not just a pew warmer. You are a part of the church. You are growing in the Lord. You're walking with the Lord. You're in His Word. You have a spiritual life that is uh, very rich and very full. Secondly, to be called, you have to have the appropriate spiritual gifts. And not just that you come up and say, I have the gift of apostle. No, they have to be discerned by the leadership of the church, which means you would be active in the church and using what you think are your spiritual gifts. Because the spiritual gift is the special use the Holy Spirit makes of you in a particular capacity. And uh, most of the spiritual gifts overlap with the ordinary Christian duties. Nobody could say, well, I don't have the gift of giving, so I'm not going to give. No, no, no. Um, the person who has the spiritual gift of giving will give and give and give and doesn't think it's extraordinary because the Holy Spirit has prompted him to do that. Um, some people say, well, I'm not going to witness. I don't have the, spirit, the gift of evangelism. Well, no, you're still called to do the work of an evangelist, uh, whether you think you have the gift or not. But there are some people. You'd be, you'd be working with somebody and sharing the gospel with them and discussing it with them for years. And one day your friend goes with you and your friend says to him, wouldn't you like to be saved? He says, yes. <laughs> you say, what, what, did, what did he do that I didn't do? You know, what's happened here? It's the way the Holy Spirit works. So if somebody's going to answer a call to ministry, should be able to show places in their life and their service of the church where the Holy Spirit made extraordinary use of them in a particular area. And that would be confirmed by the leaders of the church. Uh, they have witnessed it, and they've helped you to cultivate it. We'll come back. There's a couple more requirements, but those two pretty well stand out. So now he's listening to the Lord, and he's going to answer the call. Uh, Here am I. Send me. Unfortunately, that's where most sermons on this chapter end. Uh, but it gets a little bit more difficult and challenging beyond this point. Certainly, that's the response you want. Everybody in the pew should say, I don't know what I can do, but here I am. I want to serve. I want to, I want to go on this mission trip. I've never shared the gospel, whatever, but I want to get involved. I had a friend when I lived in Tallahassee. This man owned five car dealerships, never sold a car in his life, but he had the dealerships. And he was a Christian, but he said he just he couldn't share his faith about anything. But he wanted to go to Israel, so there were three men in the city. They went on three separate trips with me to Israel. And uh, Richard wanted to know what kind of a gift could he bring his salesman from Israel. And I said, well, don't take him a plate with Israel written on it or something like that. So I talked him into taking a Herodian lamp to them, the Virgin's lamp nice little piece of pottery 
of course, uh, when he first gave one to the uh, friend, his supervisors, they thought it was a pile of junk. You know, what did you bring this ugly thing back for? And then he had to explain to them. And he's explaining about the lamp and how you put the oil in it and how the virgins didn't have oil in their lamps and, and the believer has oil in their lamps because they have the Holy Spirit. He says, after a while, he says, I caught myself sharing the gospel. He said, I'd never done that before. So I came back the next year and bought 20 more lamps. Um, he, just, he needed a prop. He needed a, an, an entrance in, and after that, he didn't need it. And uh, he became very active in the church, and, and, uh, and it, was, it was quite a moving experience because he died about two years later, very quickly, very suddenly. And uh, just before he died, he said, but I finally arrived where the Lord wanted me, and uh, now I'm going to serve in heaven. But uh, this is the nature of a call that you, you're willing to go. You're willing to do. You're willing to be what he wants. But if you say that or sing that, mean it. Because he'll take your, you up on that. But here, he's got the dedication. And that's followed by the inspiration. I say inspiration because he's given the message to deliver. He's not going to concoct something. And this is what the Lord says. <clears throat> um... Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. What a revolting message. Um, and that's Isaiah's response. Notice his response. How long do I have to do that? <laughs> and God's answer is until every city in the land is destroyed and the people are carried off into captivity and the land is in complete ruins and all that will be left will be a tree stump. Um, that's at the end of the passage. Keep in mind the way the Hebrews describe a kingdom, whether it's Babylon or Israel, is a huge tree. And the birds nest in the tree and uh, give shade. And this is compared to a kingdom in a lot of the prophetic literature. At the Babylonian captivity, God cut down the tree. Much like John the Baptist was saying, the axe is in his hand and he's going to chop down this bush. But... God cut down the tree, but he left the stump. And the stump of the tree at the end of the chapter tells you that that's the remnant. That's the small group of true believers, that they are not destroyed. They may die in the war. They might go into captivity. But they are not the ones who are unbelievers and destroyed. And as Isaiah will develop his messages, after a while, a little shoot comes out the side of this stump. And that little shoot is going to grow up and be a tree, which will be a kingdom that fills the whole world. So God is uh, bringing this promise, promise together, but he is going to strike the people with judicial hardening. Now you say, boy, that's not very fair. They didn't have a chance to believe. 
Well, let's back up a little bit before you make that assessment. This is 742 B.C. This people in Israel had been in the land of promise for, for 700 years. They, for 700 years, have had Scripture. They have, for 700 years, had priests and prophets and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the blessings of God and the answers to prayer and the hymns and the praises in the sanctuary. That's been going on for 700 years. And they are worse now than they were in the period of the judges. And God says, enough's enough. Everybody out of the pool. It's over. You're going. Because if you look at the lists in Leviticus 26 and at the end of Deuteronomy... It's all prorated. If you are disobedient and you persist in it, I'll withhold the rain. If you continue to live disobedient lives, I'll strike your crops with, with blight. If you still persist, noxious beasts will show up. And if you continue to persist in evil, your land will be invaded by different armies. And down to the bottom of the list, which says, And if after all that you still refuse to repent and believe, I will send you into exile. Which is what is going to happen here. So the message is going to be a hardening of the hearts of these people so they won't repent. Because they have resisted too long. Sometimes that happens when you're witnessing and sharing the gospel with people and they... They have resisted and resisted and resisted, but they still have questions and you're still dealing with them. And then all of a sudden you sense that uh, the Holy Spirit isn't quickening them very much here and isn't really doing much with them. And you realize that uh, maybe, as, as C.S. Lewis put it, uh, God is saying to them, if you won't say your will be done then uh, to me, then I'll say your will be done. You don't want it. You don't want to have it then you will hear this and there will be judgment. It doesn't mean that of all the people went into captivity, none of them came to faith because a lot of them did. But this is a judgment on the nation because they have persisted in unbelief all of this time. And what Isaiah has to pronounce is a message of judgment on the nation. Nobody likes that. Certainly not modern pastors. They want to have positive ministries. They want to say things that will be uplifting and encouraging and maybe practical suggestions about your life and your marriage and all these kinds. All of which is good. All of which is part of the ministry. But there's a dark side of the gospel. Or as Isaiah says, it's God's strange word. If you look at it carefully in the call of Abram, you can see what he's doing. He says to Abram, All those who bless you, I will bless. But the one who treats you lightly, I must curse. He's slow to judge, eager to bless. But perseverance after 700 years, judgment will fall. One of the best known quotations that we use from Lancelot Andrews I think fits here very well. You may not be familiar with Lancelot Andrews. You've read his works probably. He was an Anglican dean and priest in England at the time of uh, Elizabeth I. 
he personally translated Genesis through Samuel in the King James. So you're dealing with a great man who made great contribution. But in one time he said, and I'll have to put it in kind of a modern English for you a little bit, unless you're up on Tudor English. But he's, he charged the uh, people in his diocese, the people on... He was the dean at the time in the deanery. And he said essentially this, that it is not our task to tell people today what they want to hear. Rather, it is our challenge to tell them what in some sad future day they would wish they had heard. Well, that's very painful because we don't like that, because people don't like it, and we like to be more popular. First time I attended a large Anglican church in Dallas that I eventually joined, the priest got up and he was, yeah, I guess he had the nerve to do it. He'd been there for a number of years, but he said, he said, you, many of you Episcopalians don't believe you have to get saved. <laughs> and he said, but when I took vows to be ordained in this church, one of those vows was to preach the gospel. So here it comes. <laughs> and it was really a very powerful message. But it's, uh, it's the point that, that there is a side to the ministry that is unpopular, that is disturbing, that people don't like to hear. And uh, yet, if there is no judgment... There is no such thing as salvation. What would you be saved from if God is not going to judge anybody? If everybody is going to get there as the same as everybody else? But you have to be saved from something. And if he promises salvation and you reject that judgment, you either pay for your own sins or you accept his pardon. Those are the choices. And it's um, pretty clear cut in Scripture. But if we say that we're saved, then from what? And if we tell people they should come to faith and trust in the Lord, be part of this believing remnant, um, if they don't, what then? The warning is clear. And, and, I mean, this is not... You listen to some modern, more progressive pastors and teachers, and they really don't like to talk about judgment at all. But Jesus did. Very clear. Repent or you shall all likewise perish. There aren't too many choices in between there. In Isaiah 1, when Isaiah delivers his denunciation of Judah, in fact, it's the sequel to this chapter. Because when you read Isaiah 1, the land is destroyed. The invading armies were everywhere. The place was in ruins and the people couldn't figure out what the cause was. So they come together, have a national prayer service. And God says, hey, I hate that. I don't want that. And he said, um, come now. And it should be translated something like, come now and let us settle this dispute. Not come and reason. On this issue, you're not going to sit down and reach an agreement between you and God. Because he tells you, come and let us settle this dispute. If you find forgiveness from your sins through faith in me and evidence of repentance, you will be blessed with the eternal blessings. 
And if you don't, I'll wipe you out. That's what he says. That's the choice. The one is so easy and so simple that you trust the Lord. The other one might say, well, it's easier because I don't have to go to church, don't have to do anything. But you'll be thinking about that for eternity. And this is really a sad situation. So here we have the call of Isaiah. And it will be the call of anybody going into ordinary service. But it certainly is a pattern for worship. You go to the sanctuary to hear from God. That will be through the Word, through the preaching, through the reading. I always like to have long Scripture readings read. It's the only part of a service that is 100% Scripture. Uh, All the rest is making allusions to it and summarizing. This is Word of God pure and correct. So you hear from God and you get full revelation of the glory of Christ and the resurrection and all of that. That should convict you. Because the rev- you might say, but I'm already walking with the Lord. But that's not the way walking in the light works. When you see more light, the Lord shows you more things in your life that have to be dealt with. And you take care of them. And, and you go home and read another chapter of the Bible, and he says, hey, about this. And that calls your attention. So it's ongoing. But it'll convict you of sin, and it will convict you of the need to be in fellowship with the Lord And once you are aware of that, the forgiveness is easy. It's simple. Uh, David said, I was suffering, depressed, and and in grief for all the year before I confessed my sin. And when I confessed my sin, he forgave me. That was it. No penance to do or whatever. This is it. And so he finds the forgiveness. And then he listens to that word from the Lord a little bit more specifically. I saved you, I forgave you, I'm calling you because I have something for you to do. And every believer has to focus in on that same idea. What can I be doing in this congregation or in the church that uh, will be a service to God? What happens when people, people say, well, I'm not very gifted and I don't have much to go with. You have everything God intended you to have. You say, well, you know, I may not be sufficient for this. Well, Paul said, who is? None of us are. But you go because the Lord sends you. If he sends you, he will be with you, and he will prepare and provide for you. That will work with Isaiah here, and it will work with any Christian who hears the word of God and genuinely responds to it by faith. And in the final analysis... uh, There will be fruit for that ministry, but there will also be people who will not want to hear it. And this is what you deal with in any age and any generation. So here we have, again, a call of the servant of God, and at the heart of it is, coals off the altar for the sacrifice, bypass the ritual, take care of the sin, you're forgiven. And it's as simple as that. Uh, So we will, in church, uh, make a confession of sin and We know that the Lord has uh, forgiven us. One of my favorite services to attend, they don't have them in too many places, but in the Episcopal world, there's a Sunday Sunday evening service called Compline. And uh, if it's done right, it's beautiful. It's when the church says goodnight to Jesus. It's usually about 9.30 or 10 on Sunday night. That's a killer right there, but, you know, that's... uh, 
they come together. And it'll be ministers of all denominations as well as people. And what I like about this service is the way they do it. When you start off the service, the person who is leading the service, maybe a bishop, he may be a dean, somebody in authority, he will first say the confession of sin for his own sins. And the congregation in unison will read the absolution to him, forgiving him. Then he can turn around and uh, they will make the confession of sin and he will deliver the absolution to them, uh, which is just the declaration that God is forgiving their sins. That's taken right out of the Old Testament because they'd always see... I mean, in the New Testament, we're rejoicing. We don't have a high priest who was sinful. But in Israel, they could look into the sanctuary and they couldn't start the service yet because the high priest was in there confessing his sins so that he would be in the right spiritual condition to help us. And it was uh, mutual going both ways. But that's a response to the revelation of God. And when you respond correctly to him, then you discover he's got something for you to do and you may not think you can do it, but you can, because most of the things that have been done in the life of the church and the history of Christianity, especially here in the States, didn't start with the clergy. It started with the layman, and it made major strides in all of the way that the church functions today. Anyway, we'll stop there for now, and uh, trust that the Lord will uh, use the scriptures here to remind us that whatever happens in the world and however we get shattered in our earthly existence, our king is in heaven. And uh, we have to keep our eyes on the true king, the true leader, not on the puppets here on the earth. Right? Well, once again... Once again, thank you very much, Alan. I've just, I probably heard you do Isaiah, teach through Isaiah 6 a dozen times. Every time there's something new that it's I catch. Nature. It's the nature of the word. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay, who has a question? We have one back here and then David Dunn over in the middle. Thank you for that, Doug. So I can't wait to go back home and deliver this new call to worship. Not my liver, but thine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I always, my cry is always, deliver me. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes perfect sense now. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it gets translated in the Bible so you don't recognize it. I mean, the psalmist says when he wants to praise the Lord, he's going to pour out his liver. But they put it, pour out his heart, <laughs> catering to the Westerners. <laughs> Dr. Ross says we constantly try to defend the deity of Christ, calling him Yahweh, the great I Am. As I look at this chapter, you have in verse 1, Adon, mm-hmm. for the Lord, and then it goes to Yahweh of hosts, then the king, Yahweh of hosts, then the plural pronoun, and then 6.12 goes just to simply Yahweh. Would you see all these terms simply describing Jesus Christ in every place, even though you have the fullness of the Godhead with us? Because I've had some people try to say, well, Jesus isn't Yahweh. He's Adon, which is used for humans. 
So they'll go yeah, there. It depends. It depends entirely on the context you're in. Um, and I think when you're dealing with passages like this, uh, all of them are referring to the second person of the Trinity, whose property in the Bible is always to reveal the Godhead. And so uh, sometimes they will refer to him as Adon, or sometimes they spell it in the Hebrew text Adonai. Adon means Lord. Adonai is actually a plural with a suffix. It means literally my lords. They put that in the plural so that you would not get it mixed up with Adoni, my good man, you know, my or sir. But like in Psalm 110, um, Yahweh said to my Adon, my Lord. David is seeing that his great descendant is going to be his master and he came from heaven. And so they will use them interchangeably. Uh, one of the things that I've caught my students doing, I try to stop these things before they get too far out of hand. You don't want to say, when you're talking about the Old Testament, Jesus is the son of Yahweh. That doesn't work. The word Yahweh is the holy name of God, and it, the Old Testament writers didn't distinguish between the members of the Trinity. But when you start looking at the individual passages where Yahweh is used, and those verses quoted in the New Testament, um, sometimes it's talking about second person of the Trinity. Sometimes it's talking about the Father. It's not ever used for the Holy Spirit. So you can be in a passage, you're reading this Old Testament prophecy, and it's talking about Yahweh, and you think, well, this is clearly the sovereign God. It must be God Almighty. And then it's quoted in Hebrews that this is Jesus. I mean, so you have to acknowledge Yahweh could be used for both the first and the second person of the Godhead. And um, Yahweh of armies is a technical term uh, that um, when he comes to judge the world, he's got all these powers that are available to him, heavenly armies, earthly armies. And that's exactly what Jesus says to the people who were interrogating him. You don't have any power unless you got it from heaven. And if I wanted to, I could ask my father and he'd send legions of angels. They're all at his disposal. But then he wouldn't be fulfilling scripture. So it's... Uh, it's a title for Yahweh. The Israelites didn't think in terms of the triunity, except there are several really important key passages where it gives a very bold hint that there's more going on within the Trinity. And um, they sneak up on people. <laughs> They're not usually used to it, but in places you don't expect it. Uh, in the end of the book of Proverbs, for example, there's a section where um, they're talking about uh, this man. He claims to have wisdom, but he doesn't have it. He's not sure. And so a whole series of questions were raised. Who has created the world? Who has gathered the winds? Who? And the answer is always God. And then it comes in in verse 4 and tells you, what is his name and what is his son's name? Well, you look at that and say, that's that's just not nice poetry. If that was the only verse you had like that. But when you look at about a dozen more, you realize, here's Daniel. He's saying, the ancient of days, wonderful Aramaic word, means antique. Uh, this is the Father. And one is brought into his presence who is like a son of man. He isn't a son of man. I mean, this is one of the ironies of Jesus taking that title. It's the one thing he isn't. 
is the son of a virgin, but not the son of a man. But he's brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and he is given the kingdom and the dominion, and he comes to judge the world. Uh, it gets scenes like that, and it's, it's not just a fanciful imagination. God is giving hints all the way through the Old Testament that there's something more complex here than uh, what we just normally assume. Is there another question? Okay, well, it's time to take a break, and we'll come back at 3.15 for our uh, final afternoon session. So we'll see you in 25 minutes.